0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. We have a great show for you guys today. Just to give you an idea of what's coming, we have an interview with Tara Vanderwood uh, that Phil did, and you're going to just love hearing from her. She's a adult adoptee. She's a social worker, an advocate, an educator, and just has a wealth of information and knowledge to share with us. We also um, have our thoughts from the field uh, from Guatemala, and also a book to recommend. But we just want to kick off our show with our mailbag question. And today's question comes from Zimbabwe and it is about data collection. So let me read this for you guys. It is basically someone mentioned in one of your podcasts that data is important. How can we collect the data for the country so we can make informed strategies to solving our orphan crisis? So Phil, why don't you, why don't you give a, an answer for that?
2: Yeah, well, I, I wish I had a great answer that just that just was the silver bullet for this. But unfortunately, as we have uh, come to see on this show, there really are very few silver bullets in this work. Um, in fact, I don't know of any that uh, are universally true. And this this does come from Zimbabwe, from uh, Jafat uh, Chifamba. Who was with me in Thailand at the World Without Orphans Forum, and and there's something you know we learned there. You know, a lot of times is is that there are so many different issues going on around the world that are really hard to tackle with one thing. And this data collection, though, is a big deal. It's something we really need to start focusing more of our energies on in in the in the orphan care movement because, as we know, as we've talked about on this show, the orphan definition is really ambiguous. Um, The orphan numbers are are ambiguous has done a great white paper on orphan care statistics um, or on orphan statistics, but but that even itself talks about the fact that street kids aren't in there. Um, A lot of other children are not in there and we don't really know what the real numbers are. And part of that is that, you know, the census uh, collection in a lot of countries is just flawed in many ways. But then also, you know, a lot of these kids are just abandoned from birth. They're not birthed in hospitals. So even if there are good data collection, you know, practices in place, these kids still aren't numbered in that. Um, And there are also, you know, issues where we just lose track of the kids in these, in these different countries. And that's a lot of what we're talking about the street kids. Um, and so what, what the issues are though, if the data collections aren't in place, if we don't know who these kids are, if we don't know how many there are, uh, adoption becomes more difficult. Registering these children for adoptions. is really hard. We know that in China is a big issue, a big deal. It's why, you know, the adoption has slowed down to a snail's pace. It's one of the reasons for that, um, is because these kids aren't able to be registered because they're not in the system anywhere. And then on top of it, it's centralized data collection. So even if it is collected in one area of a particular country, take Zimbabwe, Honduras, which I know a little bit better, um, is one of those countries too, where, you know, certain regions of the country may have some records of the kids, but if they move or if they're moved to a different place, a different orphanage, a different home, um, their, their data isn't in that other region and there's no centralized data uh, processing. And so there are so many issues there. Uh, we obviously don't have time to get into. To today but I just want to um, answer the question that, you know, how do we know, how do we get data collection processes in place? I think it's just us coming together and determine what we need as the, I say we, as the orphan care movement to determine what do we need and then really going into the governments and really pushing the government to see the importance of knowing who these children are, where they are, what their issues are, whether they've been immunized, all of those things that need to be in place. Um, and we just need to really lobby for that, really advocate for that or else it's never, ever going to happen
1: i totally agree i think when you've traveled to a third world country i think you see it and it it really brings this issue to light of i mean infrastructure is not even in place and so there are children who are who are not born in a hospital with a doctor and a, a delivery room and all of those things that is that is such a western point of view and so um Really going in, I think you have to have the mentality of we're going to work with what we know and and kind of go from there. And so I love and applaud um, just the desire to have accurate data and, and think that that's, that's always going to probably be an issue. And so uh, just continuing to do the work with what we know.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, with that, I, I, again, there's no clear-cut answer to that, and, and, you know, I am sorry for that, because if there was, I think it would be a lot easier to do some of the work that we're doing. But uh, as as there isn't a clear-cut answer to that, some of the stuff that Tara talked to me about to transition to our interview with Tara Vanderwood, who is a woman with a lot of wisdom, a woman who knows and understands the, a lot of these issues that we're talking about um, in orphan care are nuanced and are difficult, and so... I'm excited for you folks out there to be able to hear from Tara. If you haven't heard from her at a conference or a seminar, um, I encourage you to go check out some of her stuff online. You can even invite her to do training sessions. She has, you know, as she'll say on the on the podcast on the, during our interview she does, you know, eight hour training sessions on some of these issues. Some of them are multiple day training sessions where she's able to help adoptive parents. She's able to help adoptees as well. She is an adoptee. She is an adoptive parent as you said, Kelly. And uh, and she also is able to, is, is a great communicator, as you will see. So um, I look forward to hearing, hearing feedback from all you out there. I also will be able to put, uh, we will be putting information about Tara on our, on our website, thinkorphan.com. You can go there and get the show notes, which has all the links to her information as well as anything else on this show. So thanks so much for, for your listen. And I uh, encourage, again, to hear comments, questions you guys have out there. And uh, so here it goes. Well, Tara, it's great to have you here on the show today. How are you doing? I'm good,
3: Phil. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, so I know a lot of people out there uh, probably haven't heard your story, don't know a lot about you. Um, Some of the folks have probably... I uh, heard you speak at a at different conferences. I know I've heard you together for adoption, and you've been at the KFO summit. But for those of out there that haven't that haven't heard you speak or don't know much about you, can you share uh, your story a little bit and how you got to where you are today?
3: Sure. So I um, am a social worker, and I have most recently—and I guess I say most recently—as in the last decade or so, I have been in the adoption community. Um, really working to educate, I would say, current adoptive parents and also prospective adaptive parents. Um, I have some background working in medical social work, working in gerontology. I worked for Healthy Families for a while, which is a program to prevent child abuse, child neglect, making home visits to um, families' homes, and then most recently worked for several years at a large adoption agency. And it was really during that time where I became most interested in reading everything I could about adoption, the impact on adoptees, the lifelong ramifications for parents, for kids, for adults, et cetera, um, and really started speaking, educating during that time. Um, became really curious about attachment, identity, race, loss, trauma, et cetera. Um, personally speaking, you know, I'm also involved in adoption, I would say, um, as an adoptive mother. So both of my children were born in Korea. My husband and I adopted them when they were. Six and ten months, and then I also was adopted. So there's a lot of adoption (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, within me. And I was born in South Korea as well, and adopted when I was about one year of age. And so I've lived the experience. So Mm -hmm. having lived the experience, and then having read and done some research, and continued to have conversations with fellow adoptees, adoptive parents, um, all that kind of culminates into this. into what I'm doing today. And so I do that, and then I also work at my kids' school three days a week, and so um, I enjoy both. And um, I'm grateful that this ongoing conversation about adoption is happening.
2: Yeah, no, I know I've had some great conversations oh. with you, just they've been pretty short, but uh, definitely I've, I've learned a lot um, just from hearing you speak at conferences as well as you know, doing the research I do for the show. Um, you got a lot of wisdom and so I appreciate all that, all that you're doing, um, in these different, different arenas. And I know you're busy being a mom and, and also getting out there and speaking. And one of the things that you've talked to me about, and I know you also spoke uh, to this at Together for Adoption, but it's, and it's also something that, uh, on this show we've, we've talked a lot about, uh, it's, it's, it's an ongoing conversation about the term orphan. And I know that you have um, definitely shared with me, even when I told you, hey, can you can I have you on the show? And you're like, I just hate the word orphan. And, um, <laughs> and you know, we've had some conversations about it. But uh, what what is your what is your what is the the, the visceral response you have to that?
3: Uh uh huh. So, hate was probably a strong word.
2: (laughs) That might be a misquote, but it was something along those lines. I
3: I certainly could have said that. I will say (laughs) that when I hear the word orphan, it just instantly, you know, my mind goes a couple of places. Um, I understand that there's probably no perfect term. Um, Okay, so there's a couple things going on in my mind when I think of the word orphan. And, you know, I've listened to a few of your podcast episodes and some of the people have touched on the very things that I would mention. Often when we're in conversation with someone, we're using the word orphan. Person A means one thing. Person B hears something else. Mm -hmm. And so you're not even having the same conversation sometimes because the meanings um, of the words, you're not using the same meanings. Um, You know, I also struggle with it being such... A label. Um, You've turned it into. It's a. It's a noun. It's a label. It's describing a person, and so um, it's a hard label to shake. Then for the Mm. kids who were orphaned, might have been an orphan for a period of time, and were adopted. It's a hard label to shake. Um, Sometimes I wonder if the word is used so often that it stops. The impact of the word, you know, is no longer. what it should be because orphan is used so often, the numbers, the statistics are quoted. Um, So I wonder if it's overused, that it's lost its impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also think it might take away focus from the family unit because we're only then focusing on this child who may be without parents due to death, maybe due to um, poverty, maybe they're living parents. And so when we take the child out of the family and only focus on him or her, you know, are we giving the big picture a good look? Are we looking at keeping families together? Are we looking at poverty? Are we looking at education? Um, are we looking at good health care, et cetera? Mm. So, yeah, I guess all those things kind of go go through my mind. You know, personally speaking, when I hear the word orphan, I just also visualize all the stereotypes that people have about orphans. Mm. You know, a movie came out, I think, called Orphan a handful mm. of years ago, and it was probably about some... Orphan child who went on to murder people—you know, right, just yeah. all kinds of stuff—and it's that, or it's something really fuzzy and easy. And anyways, those are my hmm. my unorganized thoughts <laughs> when I hear the word orphan. Right. And so let's just use it in a way that all parties know how we're using it. Maybe we need to define it before we start tossing these right. this word around. Um, and let's not use it either to emotionally. Um, emotionally get something from someone right um okay
2: yeah and I, and I think you know we've talked a lot about that kelly and i even had a question similar to this a few weeks ago on the uh mailbag question we had on the show and one of the things that we talked about and I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it is you know uh, what's the alternative and i think you, you hit on part of it which is what we said as well which is it needs to be defined better but sure. the definition doesn't doesn't address that stigmatizing part of it as well. And so the question becomes, what's the alternative um, if we need to have, you know, a descriptor so that we know kind of that this child has this so that you know how to address some of the potential issues that could come up from it, but at the same time to not stigmatize the child. And do you have yeah. any thoughts on that?
3: Well, you know, I don't know if it's this simple, but you think of, you know, some of the parents who are parenting children with either cognitive um various cognitive abilities or various physical abilities. And you think of the difference in calling someone, um, the kid who has down syndrome versus the down syndrome kid.
4: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: And, you know, I wonder if sometimes it's us just using a few extra words, um, when we speak and when we talk about someone, um, maybe it's not that simple. Maybe that wouldn't make that big of a difference. um, A child who was orphaned, a child that doesn't have living parents, a child Mm -hmm. who's unable to stay with his mom and his dad right now due to X, Y, and Z. When I hear that, I think something much different Mm -hmm. than when I hear orphan immediately. Mm -hmm. Because when I hear orphan, I think a child who doesn't have a mom or a dad living, I think of him all alone. And this could be someone that is actually living with extended family and has shelter, Um, someone who's functioning very well. Um, in many areas of life, but because we've used the word "orphan," that immediately maybe you know downgrades our thoughts about that individual. Mm. So, yeah. those are my two cents. It's not simple. I don't know that I have the easy, the easy word that I would always use. Right. Um, but taking the time maybe to flesh out the scenario or the person.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I don't consider myself. I mean, I I don't know. I've I'm trying to think of. You know, my kids have asked me if I was an orphan, and then you think of the kids um, who are being adopted today. Were they orphans? If they, you know, if their parents signed, Um, signed off on parental rights and then they went immediately into a foster home who loved them dearly and then they were adopted Mm -hmm. Um, at what point did their orphan status start and finish Um, that gets kind of dicey and then you Mm -hmm. think of the domestic adoptions um, that are happening sometimes days after the baby was born was that an orphan child Um, how, how do we how do we use a one word you know term to cover various situations
2: right yeah and you hit something like on the head there as far as you know we live in a world of sound bites right we live in a world Mm. of of twitter and 140 characters and trying to trying to fit it into some neat box and and i it's so something we talk about regularly and and you and i both know this conversation is there's nothing it's not a there's no neat box you can put all this this Mm, each individual child is different and we need to really understand that and i think that what you're saying is absolutely right as far as, you know, we can come up with definitions, but at the same time, we need to have conversations. And we sure. really need to discuss. And, and that's when we can sit on those one-on-one situations. And I think we get in trouble when we try to simplify it down to um, some easy box that we can put this stuff into. And I think that's what I hear you saying. Is that, is that pretty fair? Yeah, yeah. Unfair? yeah. Okay.
3: I, I, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm still figuring it out myself, you know, as I listen to other people and people who are involved in the community in a different capacity than I am. Um, Understandably, they have different lived experience or they've seen different things. And so their perspective is going to be different. So, well,
2: and that's why I love this show. I mean, selfishly, I get to hear from so many very, very smart people like yourselves and and, like yourself and, and to hear these different ideas and to be having this conversation I think is so important for all of us to continually be challenging ourselves um, to think better and uh, to think really deeply about these issues. So, um, which which leads me to my next question about you as far as, for you. (laughs) Um, It's really about parents uh, creating a safe and comfortable atmosphere for their child to talk about uh, his or her adoption. And I know it's something mm-hmm. you talk a lot about, and it's something I'm hoping you can share with our audience, just how parents can best create that, that atmosphere that, where their children or their child um, can talk about his or her adoption and other issues related to his or her adoption.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, usually this is like a two to four hour meeting.
2: Mm-hmm, <laughs> so
3: mm-hmm. I'm going to try to give you a few snippets here. Um, I think that... Before we can even create that atmosphere, before we can even have the conversation with our children, parents really need to take a good look at who they are and their experiences, what might have brought them to decide mm-hmm. to adopt, how they're feeling about the adoption, how they're feeling about parenting this child for whom maybe they have prayed for many years and a baby is finally here, or six-year-old is finally here. Think through their motivations, expectations. I think that's really Vital because sometimes I think our conversations with children about adoption, um, they're more affected by the adult, (laughs) because the adult has such big feelings, sometimes hurts, frustrations, biases even about adoption, maybe about birth parents, maybe about country of origin, maybe about behaviors that the child might be displaying, etc. Maybe about their own insecurity, um, that that really can damage this ongoing conversation, um, that we're to have with our children. So I encourage parents to first do that. Um, and then I, um, encourage parents to really recognize that if we're not talking about adoption, how is that child going to know that it's okay to talk about, right? Mm. When parents are silent on something, um, what does that communicate to a child? I think we all probably had questions growing up that we didn't know how to ask our parents because they never opened that conversation. So we were embarrassed. We didn't know how to ask. We didn't know the words to ask. With adoption, I think there's an extra layer because we're asking these people who we know chose to adopt us. We're asking them about our adoption, and we don't want to hurt their feelings sometimes. Um, We don't want to be labeled as you know, pathological, something's wrong with us. Right. Um, when really it could just be some curiosity. So really it's the parent, It's on the parents, I think, to open the conversation. We tell parents start the conversation prior to even your child coming home. Think about what words you're going to use. Think about the circumstances that you know about your child's history, birth parents, right? The story doesn't yeah. start when you meet your child. The story has started, when your child was still in the womb of another lady that you may or may not ever meet. Mm. Um, And that story starts with extended family, with a community, with a culture. Yeah. Um, Get used to what terms you're going to use. Start the conversation when your kids are really young, if they come into your family at a young age, right? So you are laying that cognitive groundwork. You're using some words. Maybe they're not going to know exactly what that word means, but you're laying the cognitive groundwork, so to speak, so that the emotional and so that the meaning of that can sometimes come a little bit later. Um, It does not get easier to talk with kids about adoption. It usually gets harder because kids are starting to understand that most families were created by genetics, um, that most kids were not adopted, that they're the only one in their peer group that does not look like their parents. And so being able to have conversations at a young age about um, you grew in someone's womb, just like all of us did.
4: Um,
3: Having conversations, about having parents that you weren't able to live with. Um, Because kids at a young age, they're pretty factual. And so, you know, I say this sometimes that kids might just be thinking, you know, the sky is blue. My mom drives a minivan and I was adopted. Right. (laughs) And it's kind of just all sometimes at the very same level. Whereas if you wait a few years, right, there's different meaning to the adoption. Yeah. So I encourage families to initiate the conversation, to do it at a young age, and to talk about it openly and regularly. And so that doesn't mean every single day, Phil, that right. you're tucking them into bed and telling them about adoption, but you're going to use natural moments. Maybe you see a pregnant lady, and maybe when you get your kids back in the car and you're in the car, you're going to say something um, and just make some kind of one-line statement about them growing in their birth mother's womb or whichever term you use for their first right. mom, birth mom, et cetera. So, yes, kids need to know their history, and I yeah. feel very strongly about that. It belongs to the kid, but as parents, we're the first ones to know often. We know before the children. And so, um, let's face it, it's complex right. um, for a kid to have two sets of real parents, hmm. right? Yeah. Um, most kids don't have that. Likewise, for adoptive parents, it's kind of complex to be parenting a kid that has yeah. two sets of real parents. Um So I think kids really need to understand as much birth and adoption information that we have in order to make sense of themselves, to make sense of um, their history and where they're going next. And I really think these conversations build good trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're going to be talking about it on the car ride home from soccer. We're going to talk about it once in a while around the dinner table. It's not the, you know what, honey, we need to have a talk. (laughs) It's going to be. Yeah, none of us. None of us wanted that. That's scary. Um, And sometimes we're just going to offer some thoughts and ideas so that um, kids can choose whether or not to continue that conversation. It's not just, do you feel this way? Do you feel that way? Mm -hmm. Do you think of her? Because yes and no questions, that can really put an adopted person on the spot, right? Because usually it's not yes or no. It's, well, yes and no, but Mm -hmm. sometimes. um, And so... We get to have this conversation with our kids, and it's um, it's exciting to me, I guess, because I want my kids to know that I'm in their corner, right? Yeah. Like, they can count on me, not just for the information, but also for whatever support they need in processing
4: mm-hmm. and
3: figuring it out and being excited and being sad um, and what they're going to do with what they have yeah. um, moving forward.
2: Yeah, no, and it, it sounds like uh, you know you're really kind of developing and earning conversations as you go along. So, like you know, you you start as early as you can with age-appropriate conversations and build and build and so that, like you said, and it's it's not a big one talk one day. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so, somebody asked me actually in the class that I teach the other day, "Was well, there a best time to tell your child that they're adopted?" And I said, uh, you know. I don't know uh, you know that's a very interesting question I think that probably as early as possible that's appropriate you know and it sounds like you're. that was just kind of my gut reaction to it based on the research I've done but I've never been in that situation either way mm, as a mm-hmm, parent or a child mm-hmm. but it sounds like that's what you uh, have confirmed that my gut was was right fortunately
3: yeah um, I never want my kids to not know a day where right. they didn't know the truths of who they are and you think about anything important in our lives right mm-hmm. like I want them to always know, have always known the Lord, you know, as I talk to them, um, and instruct them in the ways, um, and things that are important to you as a family, you talk about and you talk about more than once. Right. So I think that same concept, like you indicated, I think that certainly applies with adoption as well.
2: Yeah. And you also have talked about, uh, the, the idea, the concept of throwing pebbles. And I think you gave a couple examples of that in your answer, um, but that's something that you talked about in, in one of the talks that I listened to. And can you just share with the audience what, what that is and why it's effective?
3: Sure. So the concept of tossing pebbles or throwing pebbles, um, I'm actually not sure if it's tossing or throwing. Um, I believe it comes from Holly Van Golden who wrote Real Parents, Real Children, Parenting the Adopted Child. It's, you know, it was written probably back in the nineties. Um, but she talks about some indirect statements that you might make about adoption that are just neutral, that you're just kind of throwing out there, and that your child may want to talk about adoption and may throw a pebble back at you and say something back um, immediately um, around the topic of adoption or birth parents. Or your child might just continue to play Legos or do whatever he or she is doing at that time. And so um, just mentioning things that possibly don't even require, um, an answer, right? You're just saying, I wonder if, you know, those Mm -hmm. are sometimes great ways to preface this sentence. I wonder if your mom in Korea, X, Y, and Z. I wonder if your birth father also liked playing soccer. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: I wonder what the weather is like, (laughs) um, in Addis today. You know, there's just different things that you can throw out there. And then your child may or may not throw back right away, but what you're doing, like you kind of mentioned, is you're earning that right mm-hmm. um, and that your child knows, you know what? Hey, mom is thinking about Ethiopia. Mom is thinking about my birth mom and birth father. Dad's got my back. He, it, This is on his mind too. And hopefully when the time comes that your child might have something that he wants to really talk with you about, he or she Will feel more comfortable in doing so, as, the, as opposed to if you would have never said a word, never asked a question, never commented on anything to do with their um, history prior to adoption.
2: Right. Yeah. And as I think about it, tossing pebbles would make more sense because that's a little softer than throwing. But you know, <laughs> I, sure. I, I don't know. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, th- let's uh, move on to something else that you you've talked about. Um, quite a bit, and that's the concept of uh, ambiguous loss and mm-hmm. uh, why it's so important for us to understand in the context of foster care and adoption. And can you share, you know, why, why that is so important and um, how we can really uh, help adoptive parents to effectively um, discuss that with their, their child to mitigate against the um, potential uh, issues caused by ambiguous loss?
3: Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I think we all need to recognize, and I I know that you do Phil, is that really loss precedes adoption, right? Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Um, Adoption would not be happening if everything was going really dandy in one's first family or one's first community, et cetera. So really without loss, there would be no adoption. Um, And as sobering as that is, I think when we don't see adoption full picture, um, we are doing a disservice to these children, who were parenting. Um, imagine if you were um, someone who was widowed and then you remarried. And imagine if everyone only focused on the remarriage forward and expected that nothing ever happened to you prior to the to the marriage of the second spouse and that you didn't experience that loss, right? right. And so I think in adoption, unfortunately, sometimes we just look at adoption forward and we forget what happened prior to the adoption. Um, Ambiguous loss is something that I really just started learning about in the past, possibly five years maybe. Mm -hmm. And it was coined by Dr. Pauline Boss, B-O-S-S. And she talks about two types of ambiguous loss. Um, And with ambiguous loss, she means that there's no closure right?
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, There's no death certificate. There's no ritual. There's no formal goodbye often. And so this loss is really ambiguous. And so the challenge is how do we learn with this ambiguity? Um, And she talks about these two types of ambiguous loss, one being when someone is physically present, okay? So with you physically, but psychologically absent. Mm. And she gives the example of maybe caring for someone with Alzheimer's, with dementia, Mm -hmm. That person is physically present with you, but psychologically and sadly, they are gone, right? right. Um, You hear about the people who are caregiving for um, patients with dementia, how hard, sad that is because they could continue to live another 10 years, Mm -hmm. be with you physically, but psychologically, emotionally be absent. And then she talks about the second type of ambiguous loss, and it's reverse. When someone is psychologically present with you, okay, so on your mind, in your thoughts, but physically that person is absent, right? So Mm -hmm. then you think of the situations with birth parents. So my birth mother and my birth father could very much be on my mind. I could be wondering. I could be wishing. I could be thinking about them but physically they're gone. And so she really talks about ambiguous loss being the hardest loss to process because there is never an end. And Mm -hmm. so there are some adoptees who think, you know what, I have to keep looking for my birth parents because what if they're also looking for me or I owe it to them? You know, there's never any information that puts closure for so many adoptees. And so You can't really eliminate that ambiguous loss, but how do we help adoptees and families learn to live with this ambiguity and to live with um, this lifelong questioning or wondering that they might do? And so it really helped frame for me um, the loss in adoption, um, because I think some people and I think things are changing, things are changing. But I think that some um, individuals still think that once you're adopted, man, you've got it made, right? You've got two parents now. You've got um, your physical needs met. Wow, someone actually chose you, and that that may in fact erase any loss that you might have. Um, and I, you know, share it loudly that you know the gains in adoption they do not ever fully replace the losses that have preceded adoption. Mm. And same thing for that widowed person who gets married a second time. Just because that person has a new wife or a new husband, that does not mean that there's no grief or that there is no thoughts for that first spouse who died. Right. Um, So that's Ambiguous Loss, and I have really enjoyed um, learning more about it. She has a book called Ambiguous Loss um, by Pauline Boss that you Mm -hmm. can read. Um, She worked with families who lost loved ones in the missing Malaysian flight. She works with families who have um, loved ones that were sent off to war and um, presumed dead, but they could never find remains for. I mean, talk about ambiguity. There's no closure. So -hmm. they're still holding out hope that maybe that person is still alive because there was no proof. Yeah. No proof.
2: Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that that's so helpful to, I mean, to me, to understand that To I'm sure it's a lot of, uh, adoptive parents out there who, pro- who may not have ever thought about that. Um, probably are many. Um, but I, I, now want you to talk to the, the idea of how we can, um, as family, as adoptive families, I mean, how you have done this and how you can encourage others to help others like myself who have never adopted a child, um, help the children to work or help them to work with families, work with childrens potentially. I'm thinking of teachers and how you have on your blog, you, you have a post that talks about a letter that you encourage parents to write something similar to their teachers to help them understand and help with the adoptee's loss and grief
4: hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. hope that was a good um, enough question. I, I, I was a little jumbled there, but, you know, I okay. I hope you know yeah. what I'm talking about now. Yeah.
3: I think parents first need to believe that there is loss in adoption. Like I said, I think the conversation is um, changing that parents are seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think maybe years ago it was more the mentality of they've got a great family, raise them as if they're your own everything's going to turn out great. Well, we've learned from generations of adoptees that it's a little more complicated than that. Um, And so parents entering into adoption, some have no idea that there's going to be this lifelong... conversation that includes loss. It includes a lot of gain, but it includes loss and it includes some hard feelings sometimes. So I think um, early on, even for parents who are considering adoption, um, agencies, social workers, we need to be educating prospective adoptive parents Um, about big picture of, you know what, you might just be envisioning adopting a little baby or adopting your five-year-old, but let's think about that, but let's look well beyond that as well and talk about some concepts and ideas that maybe you haven't given much thought to. You know How do you see yourself handling X, Y, and Z 10 years down the road? I wonder if you've ever considered this when your child is 18 or when you're raising and parenting your child. Um, so parents need to get comfortable, um, with the loss and they need to take the lead in those conversations. Um, and again, you know, it kind of goes along with talking to kids about adoption. I, at the end of my, at at the end of the day, want my kids to know my mom's in my corner. She understands that she told me that I might even feel sad about this and wow, I'm so glad I knew that. You know, they're probably not going to tell me that someday. But in their minds, I want them to have that comfort of knowing that, hey, I might not have all the answers, but I understand that there is, in some, t- in some ways, there's nothing easy about this, being mm-hmm. an adopted person, right? There's nothing simple about it in some ways. And so um, I encourage parents that talk about the full story, to talk about pre-adoption, to say things to their kids Um, that plant seeds of adoption being both hard and good. You know, some parents will say, what, you want me to bring that up? Why can't I let them get to that themselves? Well, when they get to that themselves, are they gonna feel like they can talk with you about adoption if you've only been celebrating adoption and focusing on all the gain and the love and the miracle of it all, which, Phil, I believe that's all there. Don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. But when you forget to talk about, wow, it's also really hard sometimes being the only adopted person in your friend group. Um, So saying things to your kids that, you know what, honey, it is sad when parents and kids can't stay together and there is both loss and gain in adoption. Um, Saying things to your kids like, you know, I wonder if someday you're going to think about your birth parents more often or yeah, missing your parents who are in Ethiopia. That's very natural. And I wonder if other adoptees feel that way too. Um, Saying things like, I bet it's really tough not having all the information about your first family and I really wish we knew more and honey, I'll do everything I can to help you with that. Mm -hmm. Um, Putting things out there such as that. It must feel really frustrating, honey, when even your closest friends don't understand adoption and maybe make a joke about being adopted. Um, Letting your kids know that you can handle their feelings and questions about adoption and that they don't threaten us as parents. This does not mean that I am not a good parent when they start being sad about adoption, when they have those feelings. Um, These are natural and normal thoughts that many adoptees have. Um, I mean, I've even said to my kids, you know, talking about the word orphan, you know, I've said orphan is a really confusing word, isn't it? (laughs) You know, people use it for a variety of reasons and they might mean this and they might mean that. Um, sometimes when I pray with my kids, you know, we talk about them being knit together in their birth mother's womb
4: yeah.
3: and that they were fearfully and wonderfully made um, because I think we forget about that mm-hmm. um, because we're only focusing on adoption forward. And yeah. so sometimes adoption just might not make much sense, honey. Um, so all of those kinds of things that we can slip in there sometimes, Mm -hmm. and it's not that we're always focusing on the loss, Phil, but I would say that most parents don't give it enough time and don't put enough words around it. Um, and it just builds that trust. And I think if, you know, if any one of us were adopted, I think just that understanding, um, I think we would all want that for someone just to create that space and to hold that space for us and just say, I'm sorry. It must be really, really hard sometimes. Um, And not rushing to put the Band-Aid on it or to minimize the feeling, right? We've all had that Mm -hmm. before when we're having a bad day and someone just minimizes it and says, well, you should just be thankful you have kids or whatever it might be. Um, Because all we're doing is putting out a feeling that we're having um, it doesn't mean that our life that we are one hundred percent unhappy with our life, or that we're even one hundred percent unhappy with being adopted. We're just explaining maybe how we might be feeling on that day about yeah. this particular topic.
2: No, definitely, yeah. And I, I, I think too, it's you know, kind of going back to what I tried to ask and didn't do a great job with it. But I think you had. Uh, You recently and I know you've talked about it in the past, but you recently posted a a sample letter that uh, parents could write to teachers um, before the school year just to Mm -hmm. give an idea, you know, of the just to really make them aware of they might not know the child's adopted. um, And for you use the example of maybe a family tree assignment that could cause potentially could cause some trauma. Um, sure. Sure. And can you just quickly just talk about that and, and just yeah. And you know, I think that we. I, I'm going to point people to to that letter okay. as well. But just to share a little bit about what what uh, I'm talking about there.
3: Sure. So I have a bit of an online presence via my website and um, my my blog that I is very neglected right now. Um, but often parents will email me very often and say, "What my kid has a family tree project. What do I do now? It's already been assigned." Um, and I. I tend to believe that that's almost too late sometimes, right? Because what's going to happen now? Your child's going to get an altered assignment, possibly, or your child won't be able to do it, and it's going to put him even more in the spotlight. And so um, I'm in the same boat. How much do you tell teachers? Do you tell them they were adopted? Do you not? I don't want to tell them because then they might think that I'm trying to get special favors, or they might, you know, have all these stereotypes about adoption. But I don't not want to tell them because it's not a secret in our family, et cetera, et cetera. So I have this example that I have on my blog um, of just some wording that you can include um, in a back-to-school email to your child's teacher. And I include a little snippet, I believe, about, you know what, there are some assignments that might be impossible, actually, for children who are adopted and other children that weren't adopted even um, some assignments that are just impossible um, for them to complete. And so, hey, you know, if any of these might be coming up this year, you know, I've got some other ideas of assignments that will achieve the very same learning objectives. But if we can chat about that beforehand, et cetera, et cetera, um, and just keeping it lighthearted, hearted. Um, and I don't mean lighthearted as in haha, funny, but this is serious. But at the same time, this is just reality. And so let's just kind of talk about it. Um, and I understand that not everyone knows everything about adoption Mm -hmm. and that most people know that about adoption through the media, which is not a reliable source. So, um, just giving teachers some information, opening the conversation, thanking them for the work they do. I mean, they're expected to know so much about so many childhood topics and beyond. Mm -hmm. Um, but I tried to put some of those concepts into words, so I hope that explains it a little. No,
2: absolutely, and I think that the letter, and I think that it, it definitely is something that people can go on to your website. What is that website, by the way?
3: So I believe the website is my <laughs> name. I, I haven't visited it it's in a while. long time, but it's Tara, and then it's Vanderwood, all one TaraVanderwood.com. Okay, we'll so, have that on
2: the on the show okay. notes as well. So. Um, and we'll link to that to that letter in particular, but it, you can go to the to her website and it has the blog. It's pretty easy to navigate. Um, I want to go into uh, the last issue we're going to talk about, and it, and it's a big one. So we're obviously not going to be able to touch on everything that, that we'd want to talk about with it, but it's the idea of transracial adoption,
4: mm, and obviously
2: mm-hmm. you have you know firsthand personal experience as an adoptee and an adoptive parent, and um, with all of the talk today about, I mean, there's so much. So much good, bad, ugly on international adoption nowadays out there. You can find whatever you want, advocate for whatever position you want. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts um, just on uh, the transracial international adoption in general. Um, And then also what... um, Transracially adopted children need from their parents. Um, mm. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think that quickly, just I imagine there's obviously so much we could talk about on this, and I, I know that we're going to be shortcutting anything, but um, to hear your thoughts on that. Know you have sure.
3: That. Sure. Um, so, yes, the transracial adoption talk that I sometimes do is seven hours.
1: It's yes. an all day. Yes.
3: <laughs> so, we won't we don't on the have phone for seven, seven hours. Seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um,
3: I am very pro. Ethical transracial adoption, yeah. okay, yep. and you know maybe that's the easy answer here.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I believe it can be done, but I yeah. believe that parents need to be educated um, beforehand, during, and after about about um, various various topics. And so when I hear of a family that's adopted, uh, maybe white parents adopted a black child, and they didn't have one ounce of training that's scary to me (laughs) that's that's a little bit a little bit scary or when i think about the agencies that charge more fees um, for certain race childs and um, a smaller amount of fees Mm. for other race children well that's unethical um so anyways all this to say parents need a larger toolbox is what i would say Um, We all have this parenting toolbox. If you're adopting transracially, um, there are going to be some new concepts that you need to consider that maybe you have never, never considered before. We all know that navigating race in our society, it's complex, it's hard. Um, I think that kids who are adopted transracially um, need parents who really abandon the notion of being colorblind. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think sometimes I hear that Christians and non-Christians alike, they pride themselves in being colorblind. Um, And I think they mean to be saying, I don't even notice race. You know, you could be pink or purple. I don't even care. It doesn't matter. I'm going to treat you the same. Um, Or they really mean, hey, race doesn't matter. We're in a post-racial world now. We're not growing up in the 50s or the 60s. That was a long time ago. Um, But really, I would say when you say that you're being colorblind, um, it's impossible unless you're visually impaired. It's impossible. Um, You're not going to meet me and say, oh, I don't even remember if she was Asian or not. Right? Right, right. Um, We teach kids at a very young age to notice differences. Circle, circle, square, circle. Which one is different? Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, when race is involved, we're supposed to not notice differences. And so it's okay to notice differences in race. What's Mm -hmm. not okay is to make all these assumptions and generalizations. So I encourage parents to move away from that notion, to really think about their own biases and privilege. We all have them. I know I see someone on the side of the street when I'm driving somewhere, and I immediately think something about that person based on their appearance. Research shows within milliseconds, we are able to um, come up with an approximate age Gender and race of a person, and that happens automatically. I don't have to say, "Oh, Tara, how old do you think that person is?" Um, immediately, my brain just just jumps there. Right. Um, so, parents need to wrestle with some of that. Think about that. Think about maybe why they haven't had to have some of these conversations before, based on their race, perhaps. And then, um, I think we need to raise children in places where they are not the only. Um, we all want connection. We all want to feel like we fit in somewhere mm-hmm. as adults. We look for that in the churches that we go to and the social groups and the schools with our friends. And so we need to give our, our kids a break from being the only person of color, perhaps. And mm-hmm. so think about where you live, think about where you socialize, think about the relationships that you have. Um, I also think that we need to consider same race mentors for our kids, um, yeah, I can go on a little bit about that, but I think that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, our kids need to see people who look like them, mm-hmm. and they need to see people who look like them in intimate relationships with you as a family, um, mm-hmm. and with the adoptee himself.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: so, parents' ongoing education—you know—in right. 2016, we've had a whole bunch of um, media events, life events that have happened in our country that we can be talking with our kids about. We need to have zero tolerance for race-based comments and remarks, um, especially in the presence of our kids. Um, we need peer support as parents. So if, you know, for me, I'm not actually parenting transracially. It's on my husband, on right. my white husband. Right. <laughs> um, but you as parents, we need, you know, we need peers and other adoptive parents um, with whom we can have these conversations and with whom we can try to figure out figure some of this out and then we need to be able to talk with our kids about race initiate the conversation correct them of innocent assumptions um talk with them about the difference is of noticing someone's skin color versus making assumptions and generalizations so that's in a yeah. nutshell no. transracial adoption
2: yeah and that's it's so like you said i mean these are such massive topics and i wanted to touch on them because your your wealth of you know knowledge and resources and wisdom is, is broad and and I know that people can go to your website also to, to reach out to you if they want to use a speaker and to train you and that's really what you do is train people in these areas and and you're, you're really really good at it so I just encourage people out there to you heard a little little tidbits today and there's so much more where this came from and you know we didn't even really get into the the meat of a lot of this stuff but um, I think that there's enough there for people to really start thinking about these things. And I think you even touched on in that answer the ideas of implicit racial bias and things that you're hearing these terms and we don't want them to be buzzwords. I think there's one thing that's been consistent in this episode, and I think you'd agree with this. So much of this just comes to communication,
0: communicating
2: Mm. with our children, communicating with others, communicating people on, you know, rather than making that snap judgment and being done. To actually mm. get into a relationship with somebody, to take yep. that risk, to say, you know what? I don't know you. I know nothing about you. And let's get to know each other before I make some assumptions.
3: Yeah, and, I love that.
2: And so that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm challenging myself to do regularly as well. And read books that you might not otherwise read by authors you might not otherwise read. And, and learn, you know, just learn about these things. So anyway, I, I definitely appreciate all that you said today. And, and it leads us our last couple questions speaking of reading. Um, what have you read or watched or listened to, um, that has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding adoption and the care of orphaned and vulnerable children?
3: Mm. So I will actually, can I answer it based on race? Is that okay? You can answer whatever
2: you want. It's a very (laughs) broad question. I I
3: am a rule follower, Phil, so (laughs) I feel a little guilty not answering it exactly how you'd like. No, Um,
2: whatever. I love variety.
3: Okay. So since we were just on the topic of race, um, a podcast and a website that I found a few years ago now, I don't know, four years ago, was the Reformed African American Network, RAN, mm. R-A-A-N. Are you familiar with that? I am. I am. Okay. And so I just love listening to those guys on their podcasts. I love reading some of the articles that they write. Yeah. Um, You know, I've lived my whole life basically in this white and black world, but I'm somehow in between. You know, if we Mm -hmm. talk about this racial hierarchy in our society that is unwritten but kind of exists, Phil. And so race has always been a topic that is on my brain because I've lived it and I've had some experiences um, regularly um, based on it. So anyways, I just love hearing Um, Hearing the thoughts from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and so that's something. Especially if you're adopting transracially and parenting, I would encourage anyone to um, tune into the podcast and to their website.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of great stuff on that. Um, I actually didn't know about the podcast, but I've read a lot of their stuff. Um, oh so yeah, it's called pod- pa-
3: "Pass the Mic." Oh, okay. Pass the mic, and they say they don't speak for all African Americans, right? right? But right. they they want to pass the mic to various people in the community. Right. So, so yeah, I love that.
2: No, that's fantastic. I'm I'm looking forward. I'm a podcast guy, as you might imagine, and, and <laughs> right. I look forward to, to adding that to the to the list. Um, last question, uh, Tara. So what one person has most impacted your thinking on the issues we've discussed today and that you're working Mm -hmm. on every day?
3: Okay. So I'm going to break the rules again and I'm going to say the one group of people. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think for me, it was in my late teens Early 20s, so this was a while ago, um, when I started hearing and learning from fellow adoptees. Mm. And, you know, so much of the conversation about adoption is driven by agency professionals and adoptive parents, right? They're the ones with the blogs, with the books, they're speaking, they're talking, they're encouraging other people to adopt, et cetera, et cetera. But when I started hearing from other adoptees and realizing that my experiences were not that unique, actually, that my thoughts, my feelings, the way I looked about these complexities of adoption, um, that other people shared that too, that was really empowering for me. And then mm. to know that these people were out there speaking and saying things, and in some ways breaking this silence and talks, you know, kind of sharing, wow, well, this is actually what it's like to be the adoptee, right? right? You might be talking about us, um, but please pass us that mic. Um, And please be willing to listen to what we have to say without just casting us as the angry adoptee or the adoptee who has unresolved issues. Um, Because don't we all have those feelings some days about whatever part of life? Um, But please just listen and know that adoption isn't just simple, neat, child gets family lives happily ever after. Yeah. Please go with us to these places that you might not have imagined. Mm. Um, and so I have been so, I think, empowered by other adoptees who bravely put their stuff on the Internet, who have shared things, who um, really at the expense of often some adoptive parents or people saying that they, you know, they're unhappy, they're angry. Well, they must have had a terrible childhood, all of those things. Right. Um, so I'm grateful for that, that group.
2: Mm. that's out there oh that's good that's good well that's a great place to finish and thank you so much for for your time for the wisdom that you've imparted and uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation real soon
3: wonderful thanks Phil
2: well that was some great stuff from Tara I hope that all you out there learned as much from Tara as I did and uh, so Kelly on that note what, what did you take away from it
1: well, I obviously relate to a lot of things that she had to share. And one thing that really stood out to me was just the discussion on ambiguous loss and how that plays out in the the lifespan of an adult adoptee or as a child that's adopted. And and so we definitely see that. I mean, there's just an a, kind of an open-ended um, grief, I think, that kids who are adopted or kids who have had significant loss in their life um, that they experience. And so being being able to walk through those uncomfortable moments with, with, a, with a child or, uh, and not be able to answer all their questions and not be able to, um, really totally understand what they're feeling, but, but really being able to kind of, like she said, just give the space for those conversations, um, give uh, permission for them to have those conversations with you. And, and really that comes from being able to embrace some of those hard things. And so I know as an adoptive mom, at those are, those are things that we, that we are walking. And so I, I just really appreciate just that, that concept. Um, but also the direction that she kind of gave through that. What about you, Phil?
2: Yeah, I just really appreciate from Tara, as, I, as I've said, just some of the, the ways that she's able to communicate to, to people, to adoptive parents, to, uh, you know, also adoptees, just some of the things that, that, uh, you might not otherwise think about. And then for me, from someone who's not adopted, from someone who's not an adoptive parent, the things that I really appreciate that she's able to talk about is giving, she's able to help me to kind of get in, to the mind of a, of an adoptee or of an adoptive parent to help to understand how some of the things that I may say or do, um, could have unintended consequences, you know, and, and the, like I'd mentioned in the interview, um, about the letter that she has a suggested letter for adoptive parents to send to teachers, you know, because sometimes a teacher, for instance, had a family tree project, that may be something that's traumatic for a, an adoptive, uh, or adopted kid, um, where I wouldn't necessarily think of that if I was a teacher, you know, to, to, to give that, you know, if I didn't know the child was adopted or if I even knew, but I just had that in the, in the, in the syllabus normally. And so those are some of the things that I just, I'm, I just appreciate how Tara can bring that out in a way that really isn't threatening. It's just a way that's educating. It's in this way that she can Mm -hmm. really train, train me and train others on how to do this stuff really well. um, And to be thinking through things that I might not otherwise think about
1: mm That's good to hear. I know we've given a letter like that before and it is helpful. It is a very practical thing to do. And so I highly encourage people to check that out. Um, I don't think it's too late in the school year. Um, It's something you can still kind of send into those, those teachers. So Phil, why don't you share a little bit about our thoughts from the field?
2: Yeah, today, as, as uh, we said early on in the, in this episode, um, we have it from Aisha in Guatemala. And as she says in these thoughts from the field, she's new to the, new to the uh, orphan care. And so I, I look forward to hearing again your thoughts on what she, what she has to say, this little segment on um, how, how the, the biggest issue, one of the biggest issues that she feels orphan care is facing today and how she thinks we can address it. So here it goes.
0: Hi, my name is Aisha. I'm from Guatemala and I'm just recently involved in the uh, adoption movement. Um, but it doesn't take too long for me to see that, that it's a real need and that the church needs to be involved. Um, we have uh, spent too much time on ourselves and we need to go back to personify who our God is. A God of adoption, a God of reconciliation, a God of bringing, bringing traitors and rebellious child, uh, children home. So, um also, uh, I think we need to be there before they become orphans. We need to be there with the crisis pregnancies. We need to be there with the, with the families, with the, the basic needs that they're not being met. Uh, in our culture, many of the children are in orphanages because of extreme poverty. How can we step in without without it being more um, damaging in the long run but the church needs to step up and be there so we 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 not only need more foster families which is non-existent in my country uh, more adoption those two are certainly a need but we need to be there prior to that so I think that's where we are
1: well, thank you, Aisha, for sharing your thoughts. And I just wanted to go ahead and share with you a book that, that impacted our family. It's called The uh, Frantic Family by Patrick Lencioni. And my husband and I read this. Goodness, it's probably been seven, eight years ago now. But it was just in a season where we were feeling very frantic and we were feeling like there were a lot of things popping up in our family and we weren't totally sure how to address it. And so this book just kind of walks you through just um, kind of highlighting um kind of what your core values are and what your what your vision is for your family and then it it gives you kind of a framework to be able to address kind of those those hot topic issues in your family maybe or kind of what's bubbling up that you feel like you need to to have some intentional intentionality with and so i highly recommend it i think the the we're all frantic families and some some sense. And so this just kind of gives a framework to be able to address it. So I, I definitely would love for you to check that out. Uh, Phil, and, Phil and I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. We are taking a couple of weeks off for the holidays. And so we just want to say we wish God's best for you in this holiday season. We wish you a very happy new year and we look forward to um, to having you join us after the new year. So again, Merry Christmas and a happy new year.